Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. Many of you know that I started this podcast as a way to share academic conference presentations, and I expanded this work in spring of 2020 in order to bring you the audio versions of the pandemic pedagogy conversations I've been hosting on my YouTube channel, Imagining a New We. For this upcoming school year, I'm going to be bringing you a second series that I'm hosting on YouTube called Source Saturday, where I talk with historians and creators and archivists about primary and secondary sources that they have familiarity with and to talk about what they read from them. Although the series does work better as a video because we screen share the sources we discuss it, there are many interesting elements of our conversation that do, that do work as a podcast, but I do urge you to check out the YouTube video so you can see the source for yourself. Like the Pandemic Pedagogy series, these podcast episodes are unedited conversations, so you may hear buffering or the repetition of a question or an answer if Zoom wasn't working that great, but the content remains fundamentally the same as the video. Enjoy this version of Source Saturday. Hi everyone, Dr. Samantha Cotrera here for the Imagining a New We video blog, a video series designed to help history teachers and other history educators teach history in ways that are more meaningful, transformative, and inclusive for their students. Uh, this is a Source Saturday video series within a series. Today, I am talking with people related to comic books. Uh, the idea of Source Saturday was to introduce um, teachers and other educators to primary and secondary sources that can challenge the ways we normally teach particular time periods. And what I'm doing with this series of videos is I am talking with people related to comic books about how we can bring things like imagination, magic realism, Afrofuturism to our study of history. I've talked to people that are in the process of creating graphic novels, people that have published things as independent uh, artists and writers, people who are uh, Eisner Award nominated graphic novelists. I've talked with professors. I've talked to people interested in digital humanities. I've talked to so many people and the series is so wonderful. Watch them one by one or listen to them one on one or um, watch them independently. But together they really demonstrate the richness of teaching and learning history when we bring in space for art and imagination and interpretation. So enjoy these conversations. For this video, we are talking with both Chris Sanigan and Jason Lepetis from Group of Seven. Um, you might remember that I talked with Chris Sanigan in April for the Pandemic Pedagogy Conversations because he's also an archivist, but he is the writer of Group of Seven. And for this video, we're talking with him and the artist of Group of Seven, Jason Lepetis. They're both really great guys, and this is such a great series that I'm just really excited to be able to talk about it again and just like focus on the Group of Seven comic books and what they like the ideas and things they bring to this imaginative piece of work. Jason not only is the illustrator, he also worked at the ROM and he was a professor at George Brown College. As I said, Chris is an archivist and he's written for Spacing and other publications. So they bring a lot of like history and like teaching and learning to this conversation, which I'm just so excited to be able to like focus on it and to be able to really think about how this imaginative piece of work can help us challenge Canadian history. They're just all around cool guys too. So I'm just looking forward to like a really cool talk. Uh, anyway, let's go over to Zoom and uh, talk to them. 
group of seven, Chris and Jason, it's so wonderful to talk to both of you. Chris, you and I got to talk for Pandemic Pedagogy, but Jason, this is the first time we're meeting, and I'm so glad to bring both of you in conversation about group of seven and teaching Canadian history. So thank you all for making time for this little humble but important video series. Thanks for having us. Um, before we begin with the questions, would you like to introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, I'm Chris Sanigan, and I am the writer of the Group of Seven comic book series. I've got the new graphic novel right here in my hands, Group of Seven Most Secret Tale, which collects all the six issues into one story arc. Uh, and aside from doing this, I also work as a professional in the heritage center. And I'm Jason Lapidus. I'm the illustrator of Group of Seven Comics, and which you just saw from my friend Chris. And we'll go with that. <laughs> that's it. You just need so to know need. that Jason is need. attached to Chris, and that's, <laughs> that's all you need to know about him. For the past six years, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start with something kind of like, you know, I want to say basic, but that seems rude. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, let's start with a basic question. So what is Group of Seven? Can you tell us about the Group of Seven universe? Can you tell us about the comics? And I'm going to flip over to your website while you are talking. Sure thing. Group of Seven Comics is an action-adventure comic book series that is set during the First World War at the Battle of Vinnie Ridge and features seven very famous Canadians uh, who were soldiers at the time in the war and teams them up on a fictional and secret mission to save the world. The world. The whole world. And it's, um, so it's, uh, so on that front, you know, we have got characters, um, you know, like John McRae who wrote in Flanders Fields and A.Y. Jackson, who was a member of the group of seven painters, hence the name connection. Uh, as well as Francis Pekin Magaba, the most highly decorated indigenous soldier uh, of the First World War, uh, and a number of others as well. It dives in and out of Canadian history throughout the 20th century. It references various points in Canadian history and uses those as kind of narrative devices to kind of flesh out the story that takes place at Vimy Ridge. And it really focuses also on the relationships that um, some of these characters uh, had very real relationships post-war um, in terms of the circles that they they certainly moved about in and what they got up to uh, in their in their adults post soldier life, so it kind of combines all those elements as well as various references to Canadian history and art and pop culture, even music up to the two thousands, and kind of mashes it all up into uh, uh, you know uh, an adventure with secret laboratories and monsters and Canadian history. As 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 things that people already associate with Canadian history, secret laboratories, monsters, etc. Right, we just wanted to bring that forth because we didn't think it got enough attention. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's, it's one of those like the big secrets of Canadian history about the monsters, etc. <laughs> exactly. So can you tell us a little bit about like, about what you brought to this, what you wanted people to get from it. And when I talk to people about primary sources, I often will say like, what do you read from these sources? But what was it about bringing these real people together in these like real and fictional situations? Because just to clarify, there are no real monsters. Although the debates in the States did just happen and that is debatable, but I'll just move on from that. Like, what did you, what did you bring into these sources that you really wanted people to get from it? I think the big thing is I wanted 
people to be as inspired and entertained by these kind of artifacts of history as much as I am personally and professionally. So when I think of whether it's the characters or the events or the locales, um, you know, many of them, well, they are, they are real. Uh, they are, they are not fiction. The story itself is fictional. But what I, what I wanted to bring forward was uh, a love for the source material. And the source material really comes from a number of, a number of primary resources. Uh, I am an archivist in my, in my day job and work in archives. And so the materials of, that find themselves in archives have always, you know, I, I have a great love for them. They've always fascinated me. Primarily because, and I've kind of gone back and forth with this over my time, uh, you know, over my decade plus time in the business, but I always thought I was just keen on history. I just loved old things. I don't know, they just, I was drawn to them. But I think more and more, and especially with this project, is I actually love the emotion that comes from those records and those documents, those artifacts, and drawing those out uh, into storytelling and kind of building on those raw sources of information um, and, you know, trying to find relatability with those, trying to find, trying to bring that relatability forward to our audience and hopefully to, you know, drive and you know, empathy uh, amongst our characters and hopefully then have, you know, have our audiences empathize more with perhaps the characters in this book, the events that they're certainly facing, the time period, the context, and then hopefully have that lead to them caring more about it. And Jason, like Chris had said about drawing in some of that emotion as the illustrator, what was it like to be able to like fictionalize these real people as, as an artist? Terrifying. <laughs> right? oh, tell me how you really feel. <laughs> <laughs> you won't have any problem getting uh, that out of me. Uh, yeah, it was, it was terrifying. It's, it's very intimidating because, um, you know, I, I have a long history of, uh, working at the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, I worked there for 19 years, and I have a deep respect for uh, history in the in the broadest sense and and culture. And at the same time, I have a real love for uh, for heroic narratives and for cartooning and the iconography that goes with uh, the portrayal of heroic figures and, and within the medium of comics and and cartooning. Uh, that sort of simplified to a point like graphically simplified versions of of these of, of characters and how you can express so much using uh, a modest amount of 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 line and tone so coming up with um, representations of these figures was was it's it's scary because I, you know I was when we started I was old enough to know that I wasn't going to put pen to paper and all of a sudden the characters will look the way I want them to look right away. I knew that it would take probably a few years of drawing them, given that I wasn't, I wasn't coming from a, a place where like I was operating at peak efficiency and I could, I could transform a complex uh, historical figure into you know, simple lines uh, efficiently. I was like, coming uh, basically from a standstill. So I knew it was gonna take a long time to, to create anything that I would be happy with or that would sort of satisfy the needs of the story and the medium. Um, but I also knew that if I wait until I'm ready, we'll never get done. So part of part of the process has been about accepting the limitations of of where we are at uh, in terms of our our craft, you know, and putting stuff on paper and 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 letting it get published and moving away 
reflecting, learning, adapting, and then going to the next issue or to the next page or the next panel and constantly, you know, evolving as we go. One of the, one of the beauties of especially early comic books and cartoons that uh, the turnover between, you know, your, your most recent job and the next job is like the next day. You know, you're, you're making a you know, daily strip in, in the newspaper or you are putting up monthly comics. You don't have time to sit there and stare at your own comic. It's, those, those books were originally designed as, as essentially recyclable, that you would make something, uh, audience would read it, and then it would, would get put in the garbage, uh, you know, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. So the, the medium evolved with an aesthetic that was kind of uh, disposable, not meant to be dwelled upon. But of course, as audiences got older and more sophisticated, a lot more time gets put into uh, the craft of, of character design and the point of view of longevity of like, will this, will this still look good in 20 years? And people are, instead of uh, make, you know, drawing a page a day or two pages a day, they're spending months getting everything just right and, and using every uh, resource at their disposal to make things look perfect. Well, I, I knew that I, I couldn't do that. The book would never get done uh, as, a, as an amateur perfectionist. You know, you'll never get your work done if you wait for it to be perfect, no matter how much you, you chisel away at it. So, um, you know, we imposed deadlines and we tried our best to hold to them, but letting work go. So like, yeah, finding, let's just use John McRae as an example finding a way to like take the photographs I could see of John McRae where he's posing for photographs and then transform that um, into a cartoon character essentially. Uh, it's very challenging and there's varied results through the book. Like you'll see different techniques employed um, over the course of the 156 pages. And I kind of feel like I know him now. <laughs> right. After drawing for a few years, like, okay, now I kind of have a sense of how he would be. And the last thing I want to do is stop drawing these, these characters. I want to, of course, keep going and, and uh, you know, you, yeah, it, it's very challenging. And the, the notion of like seven characters is a, is a really good archetypal model for 20th century storytelling. You know, you get Star Wars or Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven. Um, these, these interpretations of hero stories where there are these seven characters and each character kind of falls into a role so you need your veteran and you need your kid and you need your mystery figure and all, all these sort of pieces that make a team work in a Western reading of a hero's story with a team. And so right away, okay, the youngest character being Lester Pearson, he's the kid. So he's going to shift to be looking more kid-like, even if he didn't look that way. He needs to, you know, the way I draw him needs to tell the reader that he's the kid of the group just in through the line work and the use, you know, the way I portray his eyes uh, toward the end of the series. So things start to shift and you try and find a distinguishing feature, something that makes a character stand out from the others. So I had, you know, two white males with mustaches and the same haircut. Okay. Well, one of them's getting completely shaved sides and, and a pencil mustache. And one of them's getting a bushier mustache with hair that kind of flops a little bit. I have to exaggerate characteristics to to help the reader know who each character is you know while we go okay banting's got glasses well the glasses are that's his whole thing you know and uh so it, we, each character we had to find those little those little ticks to kind of uh exaggerate to make them look clearer for the reader whether they know them from history or not because you know i, I want my son and my daughter to, to read the book and understand it even though they don't know who any of these people or they didn't before they didn't know who any of these characters were 
Um, so hopefully that answers your question. It does. Um, I want to say a couple things. Sure. First, um, Chris's dog is around, which was what people heard and may have saw with petting, correct? <laughs> and my yeah. cat also have been was meowing all through that answer and is on the table here. So if anyone was like, what? Why, why does it seem a little busy in those other couple of, um, but one of the things that I hear, you know, when people want to engage in artwork, you know, people kind of think that you have to be like amazing at it and you have to be a professional and that really gets in the way of a lot of people actually doing some art. And I think it's the same with imagination, um, just generally, like, like sure visual art but also things like writing right to it kind of put yourself in particular areas and and write and think about new worlds and i can imagine that it's extra difficult when you are working with history when you're working with things that are facts but you know that you're going to go into fiction and so to kind of pick up on some of that terrifyingness <laughs> that Jason was talking about. I wonder, and I guess this could be for both of you, like how would you recommend like a young person, for example, to get over those fears in order to use their imagination like you did to build something new from the past? Want to go first, Chris? Uh, unless you're ready to, are you ready? I'm to... always ready, buddy. Go for it, pal. Uh, Locked and loaded. Things... One of the things I would recommend would be to partner up. Uh, you know, finding a collaborator, you get a little more brave when you stand two shoulders wide. And you know, I, I I've been in I've been in bands for a long time, but I would never want to sing on stage by myself. You know, but the idea of going up as four people, you, again, you stand a little taller, a little more brave, and it's a little easier to put yourself out there when you're not the only one. Even if I'm the one doing one section and Chris is doing something else. Um, you know, having, having a partner to, to share those anxieties or, or those inhibitions with uh, has been really helpful for me as well. Just acknowledging that it's a safe fear, like nothing bad is going to happen to you by taking a chance and going from a comfort zone into an area where you're not used to being, uh, whether, you know, expressing yourself through visual arts or whatever it is you're doing. So it, it's, it's a safe, a safe place to take chances um, and put yourself out there. Like no harm will come. Getting embarrassed isn't such a bad thing. Keep in mind though, we didn't make comics when we were teenagers or in our early twenties. Like it took me until 40 to, to really get comfortable with the idea of doing this. And, uh, and what I would say is, you know, the right collaborator. So um, I'm not sure what I would speaking to myself as a younger person. I, I don't know what I would do differently other than, um, make one and then pivot as needed as you go. Like you got, you have to make it, otherwise it never gets made. Well, maybe. That sounds, sounds so redundant, but it's really true. Like if you, if you keep waiting for yourself to be ready, you'll never be ready. Yeah. You know, a lot of um, cartoonists that I listen to, they'll talk about that. You have to make, you have to make a thousand bad pages. That's just a necessary step. You have to make a thousand bad pages before you can get, start to get good. Well, then you better get going. Like start, start walking, buddy. It's, you got to get this stuff done. So uh, the sooner you get them started, the sooner you'll get finished. Could I pull something out that we kind of talked about earlier before we started recording, but uh, I also think that maybe you 
you kind of like touched upon a little bit about like, if you were a young person, were you reading comic books? Because I would say also a part of that, that maybe you can see if this does align with your history is to like, look at art, <laughs> like to engage in the art, like think about you doing the things that you enjoy. Like, you know, when I talk to my students about writing, like you want to be a better writer, just start reading. If you want to be better illustrator, read a lot of different things, look at a lot of different things so that when you're practicing, you're kind of drawing on different ideas. I can't say enough about that for sure. Okay, Absolutely. good. Cause I just pulled that Absolutely. from my own brain um, based on you, what I think your brain <laughs> could have gone. Definitely. I, I guess I, I considered it an assumption, uh, right? I was taking it for granted that, that uh, a person who would want to make a comic book or graphic novel was reading comics or graphic novels. Definitely um, reading comics uh, came before wanting to make comics in, in my head. And when it comes to variety, I, I can't stress enough how, how much variety of, of source material I, I need to draw upon to make a page uh, without getting into uh, in primary sources, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'll give you an example. Uh, during COVID, during you know, the, the lockdown, I pledged to my wife that we will watch anything she wants to watch in the evening as long as we get to just be together for a little bit. And uh, I'm not going to fuss if it's something out of my comfort zone. So whereas, you know, you don't want to go watch uh, a Marvel movie, I'm assuming. I wasn't that interested in watching. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wasn't that interested in watching Downton Abbey. Uh, but I watched six seasons in a movie. And uh, I, I found something to enjoy because, of course, part of the show takes place during World War One, mm -hmm. And um, so I was interested to see how, how the uniforms were portrayed on screen, not in comic style, but in, in as costume. And then uh, without getting too far into what's coming next for Chris and I, uh, the hairstyles of the women around wartime was very much on my mind the entire time watching the show and how the hairstyles represented aspects of their character. So I found myself completely engaged in scenes to just to see how hair looked from different angles and how is it uh, tied up in the back and what are they using? And then when a character is more daring, how is that expressed on the show? Um, because those are references that I'm drawing upon to create more expressive characters for our next, our mm -hmm. next. So it's, it's everything from comic books to Downton Abbey. There you go. Well, and hair. And so, I mean, I haven't done a series on hair, but like Chris knows <laughs> I would love to. I, I, I was going to say, I, I, I'm surprised you haven't yet. Well, actually, I connected with a fashion historian in the States, and we were definitely going to do a video, and I was excited because I could dress up and do my hair. Um, and like Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, the election, it was just too much because um, she's in New York. So, yeah, but it was too bad. I'm still, still working on it. Um, but like in terms of how, like the movement of uniforms too, right? Like that's important. Chris, um, mm -hmm. so to draw on that too, like what would you, what would kind of be some like advice that you would give someone that would be hesitant to engage in like creative, imaginative writing sure. and artwork? And also, what is your dog's name? My dog's name is Bijou. Bijou? She is a Bijou, and she is a yellow Labrador. So that okay. will just 
get that out of the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and she is with you. She is with me at my feet um, yeah. as I'm trying to to muzzle her and placate her occasionally. Yeah. Um, but the advice I would give is, and this is actually a question we've received multiple times at various shows that we've been at, is we do have, we have interacted with, let's just say, younger younger people or people in their teens and their early 20s who have come up to us and said, because we, we've self-published, they've come and said, how did you do it? How did you get here from idea to, to development to product to tabling and marketing and all those pieces? And, and, and a lot of the advice that we've, we've shared with, specifically I'd say people in, in, their, in their teenage years uh, who are looking, we've had people say, we're looking to maybe got a little collective or whatever it is, a little group, and they want to put something out. And one, your idea, whatever, how stupid you think your idea is, there is a fan base for it. <laughs> so that's, 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 that's a big one. And that's a big confidence one too, because I think there's, a, there's, you know, there's, there's self-confidence with, you know, well, I don't know if my idea is going to be good enough. I don't know if there's, it's going to connect. I don't know if there'll be an audience. And what, what, one thing we've realized this entire journey is there are audiences for every little thing you can imagine. And so I would, I would suggest that, I would suggest that. And the other piece, and we've talked about this on, on, on a number of occasions is, um, you know, if you, and again, it sounds kind of, uh, it's not, not meant to be disingenuous or corny, but it's this idea that if you really do love something, or you're inspired by something, and like for me with like history, let's just take Canadian history as a big idea, um, and you you turn that into something creative, you're able to kind of it, it comes through. It comes through. One second. Through the one, product. Second, one second. Um, you said something that starts with trans. Oh. But transformative. Then, okay, but you uh, cut out. So oh. could you start that that thing again? So I was <laughs> say say the thing about like say big Canadian history as a big idea. Yes. Say the thing. Say yes, the thing exactly say the, the thing. same to make it easy for John. Sorry, John. Nope. Sorry, John. Um, and good luck, John. Yeah. What I'm gonna what I'm gonna say is you know you take the thing that you love and in my case it's something like big big picture Canadian history just that idea. And you transform it into something else through a creative activity. And that output has your fingerprints and your love all over it. That sounds maybe a bit strange. However, the point I'm getting at is that people identify and relate with it. And I think, again, this goes back to this idea, idea generation and, you know, if having that confidence and, and if you feel like that is something that, that is lacking, again, once, once, once you're able to take that inspiration and put it into an activity, uh, it speaks volumes. It's, it, it's, it's because, you know, there, there's a lot of art out, out there that is, uh, that comes across as, um, you know, functional or maybe come across as um, uh, doing, you know, doing the motions. Uh, and it's still good. Like I still enjoy it for other reasons, for example, right? Or I may enjoy it for, for a number of, of, of reasons. Uh, but it does, it does come through and when we've interacted with, uh, you know, we're, we're in a, we're in a peer group of, of self-publishers and, and, and creators who are, who are doing this, not necessarily as their main gig, but doing it because they, they love what they're doing and we love the project and we love the ideas that we're trying to move forward. Uh, it's just, it's just apparent and it's evident and it makes me want to engage more with that particular creative avenue. So mm -hmm. I would, that would be the rec, that would be the advice in terms of trying to get started. And, you know, to Jason's point, absolutely, 
uh, just having that that first and, and to your building on your advice too, Sam, like just starting that starting that path, starting that path forward, the you know, step at a time. And you and be open to the learning aspect of it. We've been so, you know, we we both consider ourselves to be uh, you know, lifelong learners in the sense that we are keen to hear uh, how to do things better, how to be more efficient, how to engage in, in ways that um, we may not be aware of, how to confront our own biases or our own issues about how we produce. And so when it comes to that, we've benefited from being open to, not necessarily like, I mean, we're open to constructive criticism, but at the same time, we're just open to the world to say, how do we do this better? We have no idea. We have no idea how to print something. We have no idea about these. And so reaching out to the community, building those relationships and having people say, have you tried this? Have you tried this? I think there is something to be said for perhaps the creator as my product is, or my creation is sacrosanct. It is, and, and, and how dare anyone potentially adjust in any particular way. And with us, it's certainly been malleable <laughs> where it's 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 absolutely foundational the idea that we're trying to get at but it isn't it is an evolving fluid process and i think we're both comfortable with that and that's i believe what's a key key thing that's led us to uh to take us to where we are now where we've got a book out and we're working on the next one and it's not a one-off we're, we're keeping this thing going yeah i think about too just like bringing this idea into the classroom um, so not, not to make money, but to process things differently. Like you're saying, you know, take something that you love Canadian history with the assumption that most students in their history class do not love Canadian history, but to like allow space in the classroom to pick up on these things that students that students do like, like superhero um, culture, like comic book culture, like hip hop. Like I did a video with a hip hop historian um, a couple weeks ago and we were saying that like, you know, hip hop is often associated by people that don't know the culture as just like something fun. And I think the same with comic books. And there is definitely more comics, like space for comics in classrooms, but to be able to bring in different types of artwork, to be able to bring in different types of stories. And that's why, I mean, uh, Chris, you know, be, I mean, Jason, you probably know too, but I've talked to Chris more, <laughs> that I've often promoted your work because I love the sense of imagination that you're able to bring to Canadian history, which there just isn't a lot of kind of imagination related to history because we 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 think that we're supposed to stay to the facts, the the pa the, the pa packs of the facts, the sure, facts the of the past. Yeah, that we can whatever. But like, I mean, the past itself is I mean, everything is up open for interpretation. And one of the things I spoke to um, about with Julian Chambliss, who's a, um, a scholar at MSU related to comics, when we talked in, um, we talked in June about like the sense of rewriting elements of the past can really help us think differently about the future. And that is really exciting for me as someone that wants people to do transformative and imaginative work. Um, as a way to kind of wrap up our conversation, although I feel like we could talk about 
these things forever because we did talk about 1920s hairstyles so we could just keep talking about that how do you see something like group of seven working in the classroom as a way to challenge canadian history challenge the way we think of it challenge the way we um the ways that we want to interact with it. And I know you have a classroom guide that I have up on the screen. I don't know if you want to start here or kind of just like talk generally, but this will be on the screen as you speak. Like how can group of seven and works like this help challenge Canadian history? Well, not only can it be uh, a source to start or, or strengthen a conversation with students and, you know, with teachers as well, but it also is a jumping off point for uh, imaginative thinking, creative thinking. And, you know, one of the, one of the, the key tenets of, of modern teaching pedagogy is around a diversity of learning and therefore diversity of teaching. And one of the things that ha impacts a learner like me, for instance, the most is an opportunity to play and dates and names offer some room to play, but story and um, you know visual arts offer offers a learner like me uh, what seems like an, an infinity playground. And through that process of of playing with history, rearranging things, uh, shifting things around, uh, whatever it might be, I, I learned way more. So I mean, I learned way more drawing the first issue of Group of Seven. Than I did in my entire high school experience. That partially has to do with my, my receptiveness to, to education and institutional education, but it also has to do with uh, the empowerment component of, of creation. You know, when, when you give a student an opportunity to create something, they have a, a sense, whether it's false or real, they have a sense that they have some power over their own learning. And you can create parameters for that, of course, but uh, you know, how, when, a when a person feels um, a sense of ownership over what they're learning, they're much more inclined to continue and to have a, a more meaningful connection to what they're learning when, when they feel it's coming from inside them. So uh, a project like this, I mean, it, you, you can create your own group of seven style project in so many different ways, whether it's about seven characters, that's irrelevant. I just mean the sense of playing with history. Uh, you know, you can create your own version of that where you look at uh, a historic figure or a reinterpretation of a historic figure or an amalgam of historic figures and or a series of events and you go play and you find out through that play you find out what is what is recorded history uh what is absent from a recorded history and which and what what those what those events and and people and places locations you know what what they mean to you and uh, it, it strengthens your your connection to to what happened in the past and by definition uh what what's yet to be when what comes in the future you know yeah i mean i talk about play a lot in my book uh transforming the canadian history classroom as oh as actually a post-structural notion of like allowing us to understand that the things that we understand to be true are often structures that we create and so by allowing us to be open and playing with them we can learn a lot more from them right. and and one of the things i like about your series is that they're real people talking to each other if you mimic that type of 
if you mimic that as an activity in your classroom, you can get your students to think about the personalities of these people, not just what the textbook says about them, to understand how and in what ways they would talk or interact, to understand more about a particular uh, person or an idea. I remember, um, Chris, you may have heard the story when I was at the archives, we had this um, exhibit about World War I and um, love letters between um, Sadie Arbuckle um, and her, her boyfriend overseas. And a student asked me like, is Sadie a flapper? And it was really interesting because it was a young woman um, right before the 1920s. And it was interesting for us to then role play, like what would it mean to be a flapper? What are the attributes of being a flapper that come from these letters? And I love, what I love from your answer, Jason, is that, you know, you're highlighting how so much of this allows for greater connection to the material because you're digging deeper in yourself to, to make those creative interpretations. So thank you so much for like bringing that element to this conversation. My pleasure. Chris, did you want to say anything else about the uh, classroom guide or about, uh, I don't know if you all are doing virtual workshops, but I know that you have done workshops in schools. Yeah, well, just to, I mean, I, I mean, uh, Jason, you know, put it very eloquently and, and I, I just, you know, the, the big piece for, for me has always been the, the connectivity piece in terms of, of finding those avenues for you know as i mentioned earlier in terms of developing empathy with with situational you know what's happened 100 years ago not necessarily you know the you know not thinking of like from a fact base but just there's a lot more that from a hum, from a human perspective that we mm -hmm. have in common and we think we don't and we do and so when you when you were talking about even the dialogue you know, like, having, like these are, you know, these are people, yes, they are historical figures, but in, in the context of what we did, you know, they're having real conversations, they have real fears, they have real anxieties. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot more there that, that folks, I think, can use to, to then, you know, relate to, to think about, um, to think about how they might react to a situation. Like, I just want to take, you know, even the example of, say, Lester Pearson, who is, Enroll, enlists at 16 and goes overseas. Mm -hmm. 16, that's, that's not, that's a grade 11. <laughs> that's, you know, yeah. and, and you know what I mean? So we're talking about people, we're talking about, uh, you know, characters who, who didn't, who were same age, had the same, likely the same, <laughs> uh, you know, often aspects of their personality or whatever it happened to be. Uh, and, and just finding these, these opportunities to talk about, um, you know, people finding themselves in extraordinary situations, I think, and, 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 we, and trying to find those, those avenues again to connect and relate. And so if we're able to do that in a format that engages and entertains as well as provides food for thought, I mean, that's, that's really the, the end goal. Um, the other thing I was going to say is going to draw this back, if you don't mind, because the way something Jason said in his first answer about disposability of the comic book historically, yeah. like as a, as a, as an artifact. Yes. Um, I, I, one thing I, I didn't even, didn't dawn on me until right now. And I, I think it's really cool that it happened. I don't know, maybe I'm just shooting too, shooting too far, but like I was talking about archives as being places that often are collections of 
uh, you know, of recorded material, often ephemeral, things that actually were meant to be thrown away, mm-hmm. right? uh, not meant to have a life beyond their creation or their immediacy. And then to turn that inspiration and put it into a format that was meant to be thrown away <laughs> is, is a really interesting connection that I just, you know, this, the disposability of those inspirational pieces and the final product. And yet we've, right. that's what we have. <laughs> It's right. just kind of, uh, I, I don't know, I just drew that and uh, I, that was, it's, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful, I think is what like I want. Instagram Chris Chris is going to dine out on that now for the rest of 2020. That's, That's the soundbite. That's it right there. <laughs> well, I mean, like, you know, a, a lot of things that were actually thrown out that were not archived as someone that's really interested in histories of women and histories of gender, like they were thrown out and to bring some of those histories back to discussion does require imagination. And, um, and I think that's why it's important for us to have a lot of space in our classrooms for imagination. And um, as a central part of learning, not just like the fun thing that you do, but as the vehicle to understand this period better. Because as you were saying, Chris, like we can get students to imagine what it's like to live in extraordinary times. Like we're in an extraordinary time right now. And a lot of teachers talk about like getting students to process COVID in their classrooms, which is important, but also like kind of heavy. And so getting students to create a graphic novel about, or a comic strip about the Spanish flu, for example, can allow some of those emotions to come out. Um, and like, I didn't really connect or was interested in World War One until I did the the exhibit related to these love um, uh, these love letters because of how it brought me as a human with emotions to the story. And again, that's something imagination can do, especially for young people that like have a lot of emotions, but might not know how to articulate them. And uh, thank you so much for, thank you for your work, but also thank you for this really fantastic conversation about so many different things to talk about comics and hair and emotions and archives um, and dogs and cats. Like what more could you want for an afternoon? And Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey. That's right. <laughs> and like allowing your wife to choose TV, right. like important stuff. At the time, there was no hockey. <laughs> we can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> or we'll just use that as like the main soundbite and send it to your wife. She knows. She knows. It's okay. <laughs> okay, okay. She's a good thank sport. You, uh, thank you both so much. This was fantastic. Thank you so much, Tim. Our pleasure. Okay. See you later. Bye. 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 <laughs>